In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we are going to talk about teeth and nails, natural meds, the edibility or not of beech nuts, what woods we definitely shouldn't be using for bow drill, should we wear shorts, what are these rings around a tree that somebody spotted, and uses for Himalayan balsam. Welcome, welcome to episode 36 of Ask Paul Kirtley, the question and answer show where I answer questions about bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life in general. And we've got a whole range of questions for this episode. And it's starting to feel a little bit autumnal, I have to say. I'm back in Sussex at the moment, just for those of you who are wondering where I am this time. I'm back down in the south of England and I have to say, it's surprising, given that I've just been in the north of England and you think of the north being slightly ahead in terms of the seasons, shorter seasons, autumn comes sooner, but it feels really quite autumnal down here today. Um, the leaves are coming off the beech trees, the bracken is starting to go brown around the edges, and it really does feel like um, the change of seasons is here. Particularly there's a bit of a breeze going through the trees. You might be able to pick that up on the, uh, on the audio, on the microphones, um, blowing through the trees, mainly birch trees above where I am. And uh, yeah, it's, um, it's good though. I like this time of year. I like that this time of year when you're starting to rely a bit more on the campfire for warmth at the evenings. You need to get your sleeping kit a bit more organized. I know earlier in the summer, um, I was here in July and August running some courses in this part of the world. Um, it was almost too warm some weeks for, for sleeping bags. We had such a warm, pleasant summer down here. And I like this time of year when it starts to get a bit cooler, starts to get a little bit more um, damp and cold at night. You, you enjoy being around the campfire more in the evenings, you enjoy snuggling in your sleeping bag a bit more, but you still like to have that cool breeze across your face under a tarp. I really like being out at this time of year. So yeah, it's good to be down here. But anyway, um, without further ado, I'm going to go through these questions. And uh, I, I, again, as I always say, I've got a backlog and I am trying to catch up with these. I'm, I'm trying to catch up with uh, the Instagram questions in particular and uh, we will do our best. There's, a, there's some speak pipe questions I know I've got in the pipeline as well. I've got at least one in there today and I'll try and cover off the rest of them in the coming episodes. Um, but there's always more coming in on top and this is, the, this is the thing. Lots and lots of interesting questions, so please do keep them coming in. Some of them are quite similar and I'll try and amalgamate them into one overall point um, where I can, but not so much today. Right, let's start with teeth and nails. And this is a question from Swallow. And the short version of his question is, how do indigenous people look after their teeth and nails? There's a longer version there as well. He mentions Weston Price, a dentist who wrote a book called Nutrition and Physical Gen Degeneration, um, a comparison of primitive and modern diets and their effect in the 1930s. And that's a very interesting book. Um, 
But he, he particularly is interested in how, with a lack of toothbrushes and a lack of nail clippers, people look after their teeth and their nails. Um, and he asks, Swallow asks, um, I've seen two types of wood I think chewed up and used as toothbrushes, but with only two types of wood that seems to me a bit more like bushcraft survival party trick, or maybe something that was quite localised but people latched onto and gave it more fame than it deserves compared to its actual use worldwide. There may be other more subtle things that indigenous people do, like slushing water around their mouths like a jet wash, or indeed it may be that they don't actually do anything at all in that area. I was wondering what you might have seen with the Hadza or the Maasai, for example, um, and, and now that is particularly to do with, with teeth. Um, well, what, what, a couple of things I would say is one is one of the problems that we have a lot with our, our, um, our teeth in the first world is we eat a lot of refined sugar and we also eat quite a lot of acidic um, drinks um, and a lot of that's fruit uh, juice, juices as well or fruit based drinks, they're very acidic and that all plays havoc with our, with our teeth enamel. So our teeth are under attack from, uh, from these things already. And it's one of the reasons why we need to brush our teeth um, often and we get build up a plaque. And we also have to be careful to make sure that um, our, our enamel is well looked after. Um, when you're eating less sugar, and I know this from personal experience as well as observing you know, different peoples around the world, um, when you're eating less sugar, you get much less buildup of plaque and fur on your teeth. You know? um, even in the mornings, if I have, say, boiled eggs um, on toast with some butter um, and some black coffee, my teeth don't feel particularly dirty or fuzzy after eating that. Whereas I know if I have um, some granola with fruit and yogurt and honey, and um, if, I, if I had a drink with sugar in it, which I, I don't ever really have tea with sugar in, maybe sometimes on, on long, hard trips, I'll put some sugar in a drink at the end of the day, but generally I don't drink sugary drinks. But again, if you drink sugary drinks, you feel that fur on your teeth straight away. Whereas if you drink black coffee or black tea, much less so, or water even. Um, so I think a lot of it is down to what you're eating in the first place. If you're eating you know, meat, and starchy vegetables and greens that aren't necessarily very sugary, um, certainly don't have lots of simple sugars in them, then you're gonna get much less buildup on your teeth. And I think that's one of, the, one of the things. What people have noticed when they've looked at people like the Hadza is a lot of wear on their teeth from other things. So um, from what they use their teeth for. So a lot of the, a lot of the um, arrows are straightened using teeth to bite onto the arrows and that causes some wear on the teeth of the men and um, the chewing of uh, more robust plant foods as well causes wear on the teeth so you're getting different effects you've got less sugary less acidic stuff going into the mouth which causes problems for us in the first world because we tend to eat and drink more of those sorts of things but then you've got more wear from other things so you you probably don't need the mouthwash and toothbrushing for those traditional diets as much as you do for modern diets that have got much more refined um, produce in them, particularly refined sugars. Um, 
But then again, you know, you see people using things to clean their teeth and certainly the Hadza have showed me, I can't remember the name of the bush, I've got a photo of one of the guys showing us um, somewhere. I'll try and dig it out and put it in the, in the video here just as a, as a flash up. But in that photo, he's talking through the, the particular bush that they use for cleaning their teeth. In a similar way that somebody here in the UK or Western Europe might have said you can take the twig of alder and use that to, to brush your teeth or the twig of hazel because um, it's got that sort of quite fibrous nature. You can get in there, you can get in between the cracks in your teeth, you can get in, in below the gums a little bit and give, give them a good clean. Um, they do have something that they can use there and it's the same in other parts of the world. Certain twigs, certain species have been used for cleaning teeth. There are certain twigs that are sold in markets in parts of the world, in Asia and in Africa, um, where you know you buy a bundle of these and you, you chew on them and the fibrous ends you use to clean your teeth and they're natural tooth cleaners. So I think in many places people have uh, settled upon something that they can clean their teeth with. And that's not to mention you know using a toothpick. You mentioned in your question, part that I didn't read out, but you mentioned your question about getting meat stuck in your teeth, for example. Yeah, I don't think it takes a genius to invent a toothpick, you know, particularly when you're talking about people who are hunting with bows and arrows and very ingenious in their in, in their technology. I think coming up with a, a toothpick is not that advanced. So I think you've got less um, of an effect of things that we might worry about in the in the first world, and then you've got a different diet, but then you've got different wear patterns as well. So you've got slightly different um, issues for, for for dentation in those places, and and that's not to mention the fact that you know not all people in every part of the world have naturally healthy teeth. You know, some people have bad dental hygiene, and it's and it, and it is improved by um, more modern standards of dental hygiene, using a toothbrush, using toothpaste, etc., etc. So it's not always the case in every environment that people had really good teeth or do have really good teeth. But in a lot of places, I think if you're eating a natural diet, if you're eating meats and vegetables um, that come from nature, you're not eating sweet things all year round, then you've probably got less of the issues that we have in the first world. Then when it comes to nails, um, I know in a lot of places where people are using their hands a lot and they are working um, with their hands, there's a natural attrition um, to the nails. It's a little bit like, um, you know, animals that need their, their, their claws clipped or horses that need their hooves clipped. It's because of a change from their natural environment and they are um, therefore need to be clipped and it's the same with us. We don't get the wear on our nails. But, and this is a question a lot of people ask, what do I do if I don't have any nail clippers? What do I do if I, um, I'm out in the wilds and I can't cut my nails? Use your teeth. Um, you can bite your nails, you can cut them that way and, and certainly some people do trim their nails that way. So um, I think that is one way. Um, you can also, you know, some people will pair their nails, even to this day, they'll pair them with a, um, with a pen knife. And it's quite possible that you could do that with a, with a piece of flint as well, for example. And I know not everybody had access to, to flint or um, materials that were as sharp as flint, but there are some natural materials that you could pair your nails with, you can bite your nails. And also if you're using your hands a lot more, they're gonna get more worn. Anyway, toenails, slightly different issue, but then if you look at the feet of some indigenous peoples, um, 
you know, some, some, if you look at Australian Aboriginals, for example, who um, walk barefoot, their feet are very different to ours. They're tougher, they've got thicker skin, um, the toenails grow uh, longer. It, it's just a different aesthetic. It's a different, um, uh, it's a different approach when they're not trying to be as refined with their toenails as we are in the first place. But then in some parts of the world, there are issues with infections, um, ingrowing toenails, in, particularly in young people, in, in kids, um, parasitic infections, all of these sorts of things can be um, at their root cause down to not cutting toenails. So it needs to be, um, you know, you can't just say, well, you don't, you know, if you live a natural life, you shouldn't, um, cut, you know, we wouldn't need to cut our toenails. That's not necessarily the case. You've also got the question, and I think this is a, this is a more fundamental one of um, how fast do your toenails grow if you're living off the land compared to if you're eating a diet that's very rich and available all the time. You know, it's possible in the past, maybe our toenails didn't and fingernails didn't grow quite as fast as they do now because we're, we're more consistently nourished now, particularly in the first world. You know, we're, we're sort of posing these problems as a first world problem. You know, I have to cut my nails, um, my, my, my fingernails and my toenails, therefore, my ancestors would have had to do it with the same regularity that, that I do. Now, they had probably different priorities with personal hygiene, with personal grooming than we have in the, in the modern world. And also, um, the fact is, it may well be, because of, we know for a fact that nutrition was different in the past, it may well be that ha that had an effect on how fast some of these things grew. And that's before you start to look at, look at the difference in wear patterns as well. So we don't know for a fact how people, or if people trimmed their nails in the past, but um, I would say certainly with fingernails, if they needed trimming, you could do that with your teeth quite easily if they weren't getting wore down, worn down um, naturally anyway. Right, next question. This, the title of this question is Natural Meds. This is from Tony Handley. Um, first off, I'd like to say a big thanks for doing the podcast. You're very welcome, Tony. I think it's a great idea. Da, da, da. I did have a question, um, but I found it had been answered in part. You said mint is good for an upset stomach. Do you mean diarrhea, vomiting, or both? Also indigestion. They say cold embers from the fire can be used. Uh, is any wood okay? Uh, say, will the toxins from laburnum be killed in the fire? Thanks again, Tony, AKA Indy Bush. Well, Tony, uh, there's a couple of questions rolled into one there, um, but it's all centered around having an upset stomach. So um, if you have a sore stomach, mint does help, definitely. And by sore, I literally mean sore. Um, it's not going to help you a lot if you're vomiting because you're going to tend to drink that down and you're going to throw it up. Um, but if you can keep fluids down, you've got a sore stomach, an upset stomach, um, then it will help soothe, it will help calm your stomach. Um, and this isn't just a, an airy fairy, you know, herbal tea thing. It is 
definitely something that works and um, the menthol in the mint definitely helps um, I've used it personally when I've been unwell in the woods I've had an upset stomach I've had diarrhea um, due to food poisoning that I um, that I got directly before I started running a course it was literally two days before I started running a course I ate something um, that was provided to me by somebody um, which didn't agree with me and it caused me to have a very upset stomach for the course of a week and I collected mint and one of the guys who was working with me collected mint for me as well and I just consistently drank mint tea and that definitely helped um, with the pain and the soreness and helped settle my stomach. It didn't kill any um, you know, bacteria off or, or whatever the problem was but um, it definitely helped symptomatically um, for sure and I've used it on a number of occasions in that way. Um, it's also just quite pleasant to drink. It helps keep the fluids going in there for you. are not just drinking sort of warm water, you're drinking something that's got quite a nice flavor as well, which encourages you to drink. So it helps in that respect. I would say generally it's better when, you're, when you've got diarrhea rather than vomiting, because with anything when you're vomiting, it, it tends to come, come out again um, and it doesn't stay in your stomach for very long, unfortunately. Um, the other part of the question was about using using ash or ember. I wouldn't use embers. Embers tend to be hot, but I think you mean the charcoal from the fire. Um, yeah, there, there are stories of people having poisoning, actual poisoning using charcoal in the same way that charcoal is used for certain poisonings in hospitals to soak up and bind the poison yeah there are some stories of people having used that having used the charcoal from the fire for those purposes but it's not something i would generally um, advocate for an upset stomach a sore stomach or even you know even diarrhea i don't think it's going to help in most cases um, and then you've got the additional problem as you say of not knowing necessarily whether the wood is uh, toxic or not. Now typically you're probably not going to be burning toxic woods because you're going to be cooking, you're going to be breathing in the smoke, but even so certainly if you've been burning woods that you know to be toxic then you don't want to be using the ash um, or the charcoal from that to, to help uh, with any sort of stomach problems. That's only going to compound the problem. Some toxins are driven off by heat but even where they are has it been completely driven off? Has it been completely consumed um, from the piece of material that you're consuming? Um, there's no point complicating the issue with adding poisoning to, um, chemical poisoning to a problem you've already got. So I would say avoid that uh, and under most circumstances and um, yeah, stick to more uh, straightforward uh, remedies, calming remedies. Generally what you need when you've got an upset stomach, particularly with vomiting and diarrhea, is just to try and curb the symptoms as much as possible in terms of vomiting, to try and keep the fluids in, and then just get fluids going in um, as much as just sipping fluids, getting, getting some fluids in, maintaining hydration. It's dehydration is the main issue when you've got vomiting and diarrhea, and particularly with diarrhea, just try, even though it may cause you to go to the toilet more often, try and keep the fluids coming in because that will ultimately be beneficial to your, to your system. Right. Got a few planes going over today.
edibility of beech nuts. Now this is a speak pipe question from our old friend Adrian Spring. I'm going to bring it up close to the microphone. Um, just wondering, I've read conflicting um, information on the internet, basically, as to the edibility of beech nuts. Can you clarify this for me, please? Thank you very much. Okay, so the edibility of beech nuts. And many of you might think that beech nuts are edible, and indeed they are. Um, the question is about quantity, if there's a question at all. And there are some compounds which, which aren't quite fully understood in beech, which may cause some people to be made unwell by eating a good quantity of beech nuts. And we're talking sort of 50, 60 nuts, where people have, some people have reported feeling unwell. Um, they've had a sore stomach, they may have vomited, and they may have had a raised temperature. And so we do need to be a little bit careful about that. Um, what I don't know, I don't have the information as to whether or not they were always eaten raw or whether they were cooked. I suspect they were eaten raw because we tend to open them up and just eat them. And they are tasty. You can taste that there's nutrition in there. You can, you can taste that there is starch, the starchy energy in there. There's oils in there. Um, I've certainly eaten them when I've had nothing else to eat for, for, um, for some time, um, talking more than a day and it, you do feel it boosting your energy. You feel even a small amount, you feel like it will keep you going. And I've certainly kept myself going by drip feeding beech nuts in. Um, as some of you may know, if you've tried, they're quite awkward to open when they're on the tree. They're like a little alien egg that opens into four parts, a little bit like the beginning of Alien before it jumps on John Hurt's face. Um, the, 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 the shell will open like that and um, it will open like that with some gentle heat. So you can put them in your pocket, the gentle body heat will open them, or you can put them near the fire, not at cooking heat distance, but near the fire and the fire will open them as well. And that's much easier than trying to open them with the end of a knife or open them with your fingernails. Um, you're just gonna either hurt your fingers, uh, make your fingernails very sore doing that, or you're gonna stick a knife in your, in your tip of the knife in your finger at some point. So try and open them with heat if possible. And then once you do, there are a number of nuts in there, open them out and eat them. And they're like little um, like pine nuts, for example. Um, the sort that you might make pesto from, but that sort of size, and you can eat them down quite, quite nicely. Now, where people have taken 50 of those nuts and eaten all the contents of them, some people have, when they've eaten that sort of quantity, have been made ill by them. There are also reports of horses in particular being made ill by eating large quantities of beech nuts. So there's something in there which upsets some people and some horses. So possibly all mammals, who knows. That said, if you watch grey squirrels go through seemingly scores and scores and scores and scores of beech nuts, compared to their size, it doesn't seem to affect them so much, or at least they're not discouraged from eating them. You never know, they might have a sore stomach afterwards, but they're certainly not discouraged from eating them. So I would say if you're eating limited quantities for a limited period of time, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that anybody has a problem with that. But if you're eating a large quantity, possibly in isolation where you haven't 
been eating them before, then it can make some people unwell. So it might be worth starting off gradually, particularly if people are not used to eating them, trying a few, seeing if they agree with them, and then building up from there. Now, of course, there are some toxins which persist in the, in the system as well, and I don't know enough about the chemicals, um, and I'm not sure anybody does, in beech nuts, um, from what I've read, that people know whether or not they persist or whether there's a build-up to a point where it makes you ill. Um, but in terms of the anecdotal evidence of when people have been made ill by them, if you don't eat scores like 50, 60, 80 nuts in one sitting, then you should be okay. You know, if you're eating a handful, nibbling on them, drip feeding in, you know, a few every hour just to keep yourself going, keep your blood sugar up a little bit, that would be absolutely fine. I've not known of anybody or read of anybody having any problems under those circumstances. And then again, that's raw. I think it's quite likely if you roasted them, they'd be more digestible and if there are some toxins in there and they're clearly quite mild because it's not a re reaction that people have immediately um, with just one or two compared to some uh, plant toxins which cause an immediate reaction or a very strong reaction, it's clearly quite mild. Um, I would be interested to know if heating, if cooking might diminish that effect even further. But again, I've not been able to find any evidence, anecdotal or research based um, information that would suggest that there's any difference. I just don't think anybody's done the work. Okay, good question, Adrian. Woods not for bow drilling. So this is a question from Quixotic Geek. Uh, and she asks on Instagram, about woods that are not any good for bow drilling. Um, she said, you mentioned quite rightly in podcast 33 that you don't like questions where we could easily find out the answer just by trying once, once you know the technique, yes. Um, so if, if you, once you know the technique of bow drill and you want to know which different woods are gonna work well in your area, then my suggestion would be to get them and practice with them and as, as Quixotic Geek, um, says here, even if it's just in your garden to test them, absolutely, it's about educating yourself. Yeah, it's about educating yourself. So I completely agree with that. Um, there's nothing wrong with getting somebody to teach you the technique in the first place and showing you, you with a wood that works well. But once you've got that basis, go and try for yourself because that, that way you'll learn a lot more. Um, but this is a good question that, that comes up here. Given that mastering bow drill is hard enough, and there are dozens of native woods in the UK, and we could easily spend weeks trying wood combos that will never work no matter how hard we try. Could you advise on which woods will never work with a bow drill, no matter how good our technique or well seasoned the wood? Or in short, what woods don't work? So that's a very interesting question. And it's interesting for a couple of reasons. It's interesting for the reason that it was asked, but there's also another thing in there which I want to address. So you first off want to be learning initially with a wood that is widely regarded as one that works well. Um, personally, I would suggest that you learn with a wood that works at least reasonably well, that is also going to be 
reasonably available. There is no point practicing with something exotic that you're never going to find in the area where you might be. I think it's much more use in terms of practical knowledge to practice with woods from your area that work and there will always be some species that work. One of the reasons bow drill is the first technique that's taught certainly by myself but many other bushcraft instructors is because it's the most widely applicable technique. You've got mechanical advantage in a way that you don't have with other techniques. As long as you have a decent piece of string or cordage of some description, um, whether that's natural cordage, whether it's rawhide, whether it's modern paracord, as long as you've got something that's strong enough and durable enough, you can make a bow drill set and you've got that mechanical advantage. You've got that um, bowing action and the downward pressure, which is separated as well. Um, it works very well and you've got the widest range of materials available for a friction fire lighting technique for bow drill. That's one of the reasons why it, it is a core skill to know in terms of friction fire lighting. So learn with something that's going to work in your area that you know is going to work. That's the first thing. So that you can then be sure that your success or failure is largely down to your technique rather than material selection. So don't mess around with material selection too much or at all to start off with until say in this area, I would say willow, alder, sycamore, learn with those ones first. Yeah, make sure you can get those to work. Yeah. Willow, just make sure it's not too hard. That, that can be the problem there. But certainly with alder or sycamore, you should fairly consistently be getting an ember as long as your technique is good fairly early on. So those ones, they're not necessarily the easiest woods in the world, but they are common and widespread and available in the right condition often. So that's what you want to be learning with. Get your technique down with those woods. Now you also mentioned combos. Forget about combos. I've talked about this before. I talked about it in my bow drill keys to success um, article. When you are learning particularly, but even later on, you do not need to be introducing additional variables. You do not need to be introducing, trying to bow drill hazel on clematis and all these sort of weird and wonderful combinations that people come up with. Apart from the fact that you, you're making life more difficult for yourself because you've got multiple different materials there in and they're always going to be in slightly different condition. Also, if you then think that you have to use those combos to successfully get a fire, you're making your life harder when you need to apply the technique in nature as well, because you don't just have to find one species, you then have to find two species in the right condition. And they might not even grow in the same area. So again, going back to my original point, use species which you're going to find in your area. There is absolutely no reason why you shouldn't always be using the same species of wood for your spindle and for your hearthboard. I can't see any reason why you wouldn't be doing that. And interestingly, on a recent intermediate course that I was running, um, the people who were on that course, um, most of them had limited experience of applying bow drill um, for real, in terms of just going out and doing it, collecting the materials, making it work there and then. Some of them had done bow drill multiple times, they'd all done it at least once, but the experience was very limited. 
Um, and I don't mean that to be patronising, it's just by the standards that we work to, their experience was very, very limited. They'd done it maybe some of them half a dozen times with a few different species of wood, with very specific combinations sometimes. And that didn't translate into going into your typical British or Western European woodland, finding materials that are going to work right now and making a fire right now. They all got it eventually, but I think some of them were surprised at how hard they found it. That's part of the course. Part of the course is to instill some realism into some of these skills. Um, so, and that's just a, that's just a very very sl small slither at the beginning of that course, just to set the tone and to to build on from there. But it's just an interesting point that people had focused on combinations and then they couldn't execute in the woods. What you need to be able to do is come up with a list of woods that definitely work and I would say um, you should be practicing with willow, with alder, with sycamore, field maple if you can find it but sycamore is generally more common. Um, then you can have a go with things like birch, hazel, scots pine as long as it's not too resinous. Yep. Scots pine is going to be quite widespread. If you're in places where you don't have a lot of trees, but you will have fairly woody juniper, have a go with juniper as well. Juniper is the most common, uh, almost sorry, widely distributed um, woody plant in the northern hemisphere, but it's often overlooked. And you can also get the, you can get the uh, tinder bundle off the. Um, often form of the bark. So you've got everything you need. You might even get the bow as well. You might get every single piece that you need just from juniper. Um, but generally, willow, alder, sycamore. Yeah, in terms of trees, dead, standing, dry wood for the spindle and for the hearthboard. And then have an experiment with birch because it's common, widespread, um, and easily identifiable. Hazel, a lot of people fixate on hazel too much, more than it's worth, because they think it's nearly spindle size to start off with. I'll just use that. It's not the best one. And certainly don't be trying to make your spindle from hazel and choosing another random wood for your hearthboard. That was one of the problems that I've seen with students in the past. They think they're making a shortcut by choosing hazel for the spindle. They use something else for the hearthboard and then they have problems. Yeah. But try, by all means, try hazel on hazel if you want to, and then have a go with Scots pine and have a go with juniper. Also, if you've got access to lime, have a go with it, see how nice and smooth it runs, but also be mindful of the fact that you're not gonna always find lime, um, and certainly not as you go into wilder places, you're gonna find lime. But it's worth practicing with, and by lime, if you're in America, North America, um, basswoods is what we're talking about. And in North America, I'd be more inclined to be practicing with basswoods. So practice with, whether you're in North America or Western Europe or Eurasia, yeah, willows, there are species, it doesn't matter, willows, um, alders, American alder or common alder, ulnus glutinosa here, yeah, um, and sycamores over here, um, or some of the maples over in North America or field maple here, those ones, willows, alders, maples, Pines, have a go with here in particular, Scots pines, hazels, North American hazel or European hazels, have a go with those. And junipers, it's the, you know that um, common juniper, juniperus uh, communis, um, that one, 
whether it's North America or Eurasia, it's the same species. Um, and then basswoods or limes, have a go with those. Um, that is plenty to be getting on with. Yeah, if you can make fire consistently with all of those, you will rarely be in a spot where you can't find something that works. Um, if you're in North America, you can have a play with the cedars as well, western red cedar, eastern white cedar, they work very well. Um, some of the poplars can work as well. They're relatively closely related to, um, to the willows. So th there is more than enough to be playing with there. And also the important thing there is they're common and widespread and easily identifiable and therefore you're likely to be able to access them and again to reiterate don't worry about combos don't bother with combos same species for spindle and hearth wood all right so that's your baseline choose one practice with it get your technique right start working through the others make sure you're consistent what not to try don't try oak don't try beech don't try hornbeam don't try holly uh, they will not work very um, well at all. Um, ash I would avoid as well and I would also be avoiding sweet chestnut. I've heard of people having success with sweet chestnut but in my experience um, I have not had success with sweet chestnut. Um, I get lots of dust, it's black, it's very fibrous, it doesn't consolidate into a good ember um, and Anybody that I know that is, so Spoons, for example, who works with me, he's very good at um, bow drill as well. Um, he would never bother trying with sweet chestnut either. It's just really, really difficult. Yes, you get lots of smoke. Yes, you get nice black um, dust coming out in quite large quantities quite quickly, but it's very fibrous and it doesn't consolidate. So avoid that. So avoid oaks, avoid beeches, avoid hornbeam, uh, avoid holly and avoid um, sweet chestnut, those are ones that I would definitely avoid. Um, but going back to the original list, try those and uh, there's months and months of practicing there. And don't just try something and get an ember once and think you've mastered it. That's not mastery, that, that could just be chance. That could be chance, yeah? Um, practice, practice, practice. When you can consistently get an ember first time with a species, then you can start to think maybe you've got that one down in terms of material selection, preparation and technique. Until then, you've got more practice to do. Right. Shorts. Hopefully that's a shorter answer as well because these have gone quite long today, some of these. I'm not going to apologise for that. They go as long as they need to to get the information across to you. Um, right, this is from... There's no name on here other than WNC Mountain Living. Hi Paul, hope this finds you well. What are your thoughts on camping, hiking, woods walking and simply being outdoors in shorts. Summer is here and I find them more comfortable but know the risk of exposing legs to bush and brush. Keep up the great work. Nice photo there. Um, okay, so yeah it's from a little while ago that question. Um, we're, okay, as I said at the beginning we're getting towards the end of, of summer now and it's starting to feel a bit autumnal but yeah shorts. Um, I think shorts have their place in terms of an outdoor wardrobe, if you like. Um, 
as you mentioned, you need to be careful about just damage to your legs. But we talked about indigenous people earlier on. Um, you know, trousers are a relatively recent invention for most people. And, and in many warmer parts of the world, um, traditionally people didn't wear trousers. Um, their legs were exposed to a lesser or greater extent a lot of the time. Um, now clearly you are then uh, opening yourself up to thorns and damage from the bush. Um, you're also opening yourself up to potential um, insect attacks. So everything from getting more likely to be being stung through to ticks getting onto your skin and either embedding themselves there directly or being able to have better access to other parts of your body. So yeah, in some parts of the world, when you're walking through close brush, there are problems with ticks or diseases that are carried by ticks, then maybe you want to be wearing long trousers, even if it's uncomfortable and you want to be making sure that your trousers are tucked into your socks and, and all of those sorts of things to prevent um, that problem. But other than that, yeah, walking in hot environments in shorts can be um, much more pleasant and in extremis could prevent you from overheating and having problems with heat exhaustion uh, or, or just overly sweating and, and, and becoming dehydrated. So yeah, if you can and you're more comfortable in shorts, then, then wear shorts and certainly um, in parts of Africa, in parts of Asia, in parts of, you know, um, of Australia, I've worn shorts and not had a problem. Equally, I've had probably <laughs> sometimes I've worn shorts and I've had you know leeches on my uh, on my ankle. But then you know they went through my socks anyway. That was one one time in in Australia. I had leeches, um, and it wasn't. I hadn't been in water. They were just a, a species of leech which hangs around on foliage and then gets onto you. And they went through um, literally the head went through the sock and they bit me on the ankle so I think even if I'd had trousers tucked into my socks I would still have been bitten in the same way um, so yeah you have to you have to think about the environment and the risks there and your your state of, of hardiness you know if you're used to pushing through the brush and the skin on your legs is tough and you're used to it then maybe it's more suitable for you than somebody else that might be a little bit more sensitive so in principle, I don't see the issue as long as you're thinking about what are the risks from ticks and, and whatnot. And be objective about that. There's a lot of people who come to the woods, even here, and we're, we're in one of the most benign outdoor environments um, in the world here in southern England. There aren't any, there's one poisonous snake here, um, which is, which rarely bites anyone, certainly, and um, of adult size um, would be unusual to cause them any prolonged problems. Um, might cause a problem if it bit a child or an elderly person. Dogs get bitten by adders on their nose because the dogs are inquisitive and that can cause a dog some problem, you know, smaller body mass. But for an adult person, you know, it's hard for an, an adder is not very big um, in terms of its mouth size. It's quite shy. It's going to go away. Um, we don't have aggressive snakes. We don't have, you know, the, the same level of caution needed as to when you go to Australia or you go to Africa or you go to part, some parts of the tropical world. Um, 
we just don't have those problems. The same with insects, you know, yes, there are some hornets here. Yes, there are wasps. Yes, there are some spiders that might bite you. Yes, there might be some ticks, but generally the level of, 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 of incidence of problems from insects or snakes or reptiles or large predators here is very, very small. Um, so you don't need to worry too much. It's quite benign. And yet I still have people who come on trips, come on courses who are worried about those things. And is you have to talk about what the risks are and talk about them objectively um, and yes in some places where there are a lot of deer you may have ticks and therefore you want to make sure that you're covered up so even if it was a nice hot sunny day here I wouldn't be tra crashing through the bracken because with, with shorts on because there are there's a reasonable deer population and I prefer to be wearing long trousers Right, this is a question from Instagram and it's a picture and this will be a quite short one. This is from Craig Taylor and on the photo there's a picture, um, looks like an oak tree to me, um, I think, and with a, with a horizontal ring around it and in the bark and he said, I saw this deep ring around several trees whilst out in the woods today. It seemed to be too neat to be naturally occurring. I wondered if you had any insight into what might have caused it. Uh, I know what you do takes a great deal of time and effort across your various social media channels, so I just wanted to let you know it's greatly appreciated. Keep up the fantastic work. Well, that's very kind of you, Craig. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you appreciate it. I know a lot of people do appreciate these shows and and other material I put out. Um, and I don't expect people to say thank you, but it is always nice when, when they do. So thank you, Craig. Um, I think what you've got there, um, looking at that photo and just zooming in, I think there's a similar mark on the tree behind it to the right as well. Um, there has been something tied around that tree when it was younger, um, either some quite strong cordage or maybe some wire and as the tree has grown it has cut into the bark and the bark has healed and grown around it so it may well be wire but I've also seen that happen from cordage baler twine even around trees can cause scarring like that because it's very strong um, most likely wire but it could be strong nylon or polypropylene cordage around there as well. It wouldn't be a natural fiber. It would tend to break down um, over time with, with weathering, particularly at the rate some, some bigger trees grow. So that looks to me like something's been tied around the tree, could have even been tied between the trees um, across and left, and then left on the trees at least, and the trees have grown and they've become scarred by it. That's, that's what that is. Himalayan balsam uses. And I've seen a lot of Himalayan balsam this year. This is a question from Chris Reeves via Twitter. And he asks, have you any uses for all the Himalayan balsam that infests our waterways? Um, two uses spring to mind. Uh, the flowers are edible and the seeds are edible. And those are um, they're not bad. Um, so that could be a potential source of a bit of wild food foraging for you, Chris. In terms of other uses, um, no, I, uh, I don't know of others there. Anything more utility oriented. Pot lifting. 
Again by Twitter, this is from Pete Goodfield. <laughs> I'd forgotten about this one. Paul, what are you doing with your cooking pots in your Snapchat videos, lifting them up and down? Well, if you've not seen those videos, um, a little wren over there, getting irritated about something. If you've not seen those videos, um, it's been me and Spoons and some of the other people who work with me and also we've had some of the students on courses doing it. Um, it's a method of making coffee. And I might, there's enough people interested in it now that I might make a little video to show people actually what I'm doing. Um, but it's been a bit of fun. It looks like we're doing some sort of weird kettlebells exercise. And um, there is some technique to it. It isn't just a case of doing this stuff at random. There's a bit of technique to getting it right, um, to doing it efficiently. Um, but it has been quite fun on Snapchat, just doing that and not explaining what we've been doing. And, uh, but that's what we're doing. It's a method of coffee, but it probably still needs some explaining as to exactly why it works. And I think the easiest way to do that is visually. So I may take the time to record uh, a video to show how that's done. Um, all right, that brings us to the end of this episode, Vaspor Curtly, episode 36. And if I could ask you um, a couple of things. One is, um, if you could follow me on Instagram, I have been doing some stuff on Snapchat. I'm still not sure about Snapchat. I'll continue to experiment with Snapchat and I'll put some videos up there when I get the time. One of the problems that I have with Snapchat is that um, you need to be connected to um, the phone. When you're, you film it, it goes up straight away. A lot of the time I'm not, unfortunately. I'm away from phone reception or I need to conserve phone batteries. So I have been somewhat intermittent with Snapchat. But what I like about it is it's a good way of documenting something quite quickly. Um, so I can video this, video that, video that, and it all goes up and it's all together in a little stream and people can kind of share our experience. But I, I'm finding it frustrating because I can't do it consistently because I don't always have decent phone reception. I don't always have enough phone battery to do it. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's proving a little bit problematic, but I'll keep doing it. Um, what I think I am going to do is do more of my plant walks where I have a definite time and I like a definite day when I'm going to do a plant walk and then I'll do it and I, I'm going to be in an area where I know there's some half decent phone reception and I can do a walk through the woods there and I can be um, videoing and photographing and the great thing about it is I can put notes on there so I can say what the plant is and then you get that virtual plant walk and um, I may do some more of those so if you'd like me to do more of those let me know in the, uh, the comments whether this is um, uh, below a YouTube video or below a, uh, a video or audio on my blog let me know in the comments and um, if you're listening to this as a podcast go over to my blog paulkirtley.co.uk find episode 36 let me know in the comments so if you'd like me to do a virtual plant walk let me know that's that's one ask but the other ask is and I'll put the um, put my uh, Instagram name up here it's just Paul Kirtley, all one word 
without any spaces, without any letters, without any numbers, Paul Kirtley on Instagram. Please follow me on Instagram because I am trying to be very consistent with Instagram now and share some good information, almost like little mini blogs. So put, put up a photo and some information there. So I'm putting a lot of good stuff out there. I really like it as a platform. And uh, if you can, make sure you turn on notifications so that you know when I post on there. Instagram have done this slightly strange thing now where they're going a little bit more down the Facebook route, remember they're owned by Facebook, where they're not showing things quite in the order um, that they're put and they're not showing things, they're giving some precedence to things over other things, which means that you're not always gonna see posts from the people you want to follow all the time so if you want to see those consistent posts from me where i'm posting things about tree and plant identification uses of um, trees and plants for bushcraft um, kit um, a few kit items yes occasional kit items um, again where i can add value and give recommendations i'm trying to do that and just almost like a little mini blog post like a paragraph of text and a photograph about it that's just going to give you a little bite-sized chunk one or two of those a day instagram is proving a really really good um, platform for me to do that so please follow me on Instagram please turn on notifications please let me know what you think as well say hello there and uh, react to to what I'm posting on there that that interaction is really appreciated there's nothing worse than putting stuff out there and then it just being like tumbleweeds and being really quiet you know even if you don't like it even if you think it's rubbish let me know because then I can change it and make it better for you so let me know if you want another Snapchat virtual plant walk, tree and plant ID walk. Let me and, and follow me on Instagram to get the benefit of the stuff that I'm drip feeding out on there on a regular basis. Um, that's much easier for me to do than some of the other methodologies. And you're going to get a lot of value from that without a lot of effort. So hopefully I'll see you there as well. And if you've got questions about any of those things that I'm posting or questions about anything else in your outdoor life, let me know for a future episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. And um, if you can't remember how to ask the questions, this is a very long outro, outro I apologise for this. Um, if you can't remember how to ask the questions, go to my blog, find Ask Paul Kirtley. You can go via SpeakPipe there. You can use the um, contact form on my blog. Just let me know it's an Ask Paul Kirtley question. You can tweet me with a hashtag Ask Paul Kirtley or you can post, post on Instagram with a photo with the hashtag AskPaulKirtley and ask your question there. Like the ones that were there today from Quixotic Geek and from, uh, and from the others that posted questions via Instagram. That works very well. It's a nice visual way of asking a question. Also, what nobody's done yet, what nobody's done yet is post a question on Instagram using a video where they're talking to the camera, asking a question on Instagram. The first person to do that, that is a sensible question that I can put on the, uh, um, on the show, I'll caveat it with that, but the first person to ask a sensible question, not just something daft, um, that I can put on here, um, I'm gonna send them something um, as, a, as a gift, okay? So first person, video question on Instagram is gonna get a present from me. So there you go. There's an incentive to go over to Instagram and figure it out if you haven't done already. So see you there and see you back on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Take care.